boom, recording. Okay, so um, the two alternative eschatologies that I talked about, um, I want to hear from you guys in just a second if you have examples of uh, maybe places that you see those uh, manifested in culture, um, maybe movies or books or stories where one of those two myths is presented as the key or the, the, the key to the good life, um, all of that kind of stuff. So, um, but just to recap uh, a little bit, just to kind of set the stage uh, for our conversation, I wanted to recap uh, just what we talked about in the sermon. We read from Isaiah 65, which is the vision that Isaiah has of a new heavens and a new earth um, and the lion laying down with the lamb, um, and all those sort of astonishing uh, that astonishing vision of uh, the peace, the shalom uh, that God's going to bring, um, that people are going to be able to, you know, eat the food that they've cultivated. Nobody's going to take it away from them. They're going to all sit under their own uh, vine and, you know, drink from their own, you know, drink wine from their own vine trees and all, all of that kind of stuff. So um, that beautiful vision is actually the, the fodder uh, for the, the vision in Isaiah, or sorry, the vision in Revelation that John has, where uh, John is writing, obviously, to the church there to encourage them, but he's saying that ultimately God is going to do this um, vision that Isaiah had. But the additional uh, event that's happened in the meantime, <laughs> of course, uh, that sort of guarantees that new vision of the new heavens and the new earth is the resurrection of Jesus, which is the key to everything for everybody in the New Testament. And so the resurrection of Jesus, we also read that, that was our gospel passage. Um, and the resurrection of Jesus is, uh, and I'm, I'm hinting a little bit at what we're going to talk about this coming Sunday. So I want to talk a little bit about that too, um, which is about the presence of Jesus, the second coming, and kind of like what all of that means. Um, we want to throw the ascension in there as well. But, um, but of course, Jesus raised from the dead in the passage we read in Luke, uh, he's obviously um, going to great lengths to show his disciples he's not a ghost. They're not seeing things. This is not just happening in their heads. He has flesh and blood. And so he's like, you guys got any fish? You know, like, let, uh, give me some fish. Let me show you that you can touch me, right? So touch me. I'm going to eat some fish. Like, I have a physical body. Uh, I've been raised from the dead. And that is actually the key to the whole New Testament. The fact that Christ has been raised from the dead was basically for the New Testament authors, the ones who uh, became you know, Christians, uh, they all of a sudden heard the entire New Testament in a, in a completely new way. They, they began to say, oh my goodness, this is happening. It's really happening. But what we expected was that God was going to do it for everybody at the same time. But what God did that nobody expected was that he would do it for Jesus ahead of time. So God does for Jesus what he will eventually do for the whole cosmos. But what nobody guessed was that God was going to do it that way, that there was going to be this first fruits. That's one of the images in the New Testament about this whole thing, that there was going to be Jesus was the first fruits of resurrection, and then the full harvest would come at the end. And so John is writing to uh, the, these persecuted disciples in the book of Revelation, basically saying God is going to do what he promised to do. He's going to raise us all from the dead, and we are going to inhabit God's new heavens, new earth, God's new creation, which is not going to be a, a start over. It's not going to be a do-over for God. It's going to be the redemption and healing of what has been broken through sin. 
what has been marred through sin. And so that, that ends up being a really key thing, that the resurrection of Jesus holds together the goodness of the original creation and God's refusal to abandon it just because it was marred by sin. It holds that together along with God's commitment to healing all of creation. And so the thing that the myth of progress gets wrong is that it's not, it's, there's not enough discontinuity between the old age and the new. It's just a steady up and to the right, and it's something that we're doing through science and technology. We're figuring out how to make the world a better place, and we're just going up and to the right. And this was, this was really popular uh, during the Enlightenment. Like this, you know, there was a lot of new inventions and, you know, technology and the, the Industrial Revolution, and there, there was a lot of sense that people were really optimistic that sort of like, well, this is like the kingdom is coming here on Earth. Like, we can, we can do this. We, we can actually create a better world. Um, and World War I basically just like destroyed everybody's hope that we could actually get any better. The, the horrific numbers of deaths and, and, the, and the, the brutality of it. Uh, for a lot, of, it was just like, oh, well, that's not actually what's happening, is it? <laughs> um, if we're still capable of this kind of brutality. Uh, of course, World War II did the same thing, but World War I was the first like, man, like, this, the myth of progress is a myth. Um, and Karl Carl Barth was one of the first theologians to kind of notice this and say, ah. And he broke away from kind of these liberal scholars who were kind of adopting the myth of progress. Um, but of course, then the other myth that this repudiates, so, so the, the myth of progress, there's not enough discontinuity between this age and the next. There's not enough of like, God has to come and do something for us. Right? Like we are... We can't, technology is not going to get us where we need to go. God has to do something for us. That's what the myth of progress can't grapple with because it can't deal with evil. It can't grapple with that. Um, but of course, the other myth that's a popular one is the myth of escape, which is very connected to Gnosticism, which infected the early church in many different ways. And it's rooted in, this, in the philosophy of Plato, um, who saw the physical world and the realm of the ideas or the non-physical non world, the spiritual world, so to speak. He saw those two things um, opposed to each other uh, and that the goal of life was kind of to escape the, just the, this bag of flesh that we have to walk around in and escape into this other realm of, of pure ideas, uh, the realm where we didn't have to deal with this like body. And so in, in Plato's philosophy, the body is sort of like inherently sub, you know, it's, it's underneath the realm of the spirit. And so, um, so really like a rapture left behind theology where like our hope is that we're going to escape from this terrible world and these mortal bodies and we're going to escape into like this uh, imma immaterial, non-physical bliss. That's actually a Gnostic idea um, rooted in the philosophy of Plato. And, it, and the problem with it, is twofold. Uh, it doesn't affirm the goodness of creation, right? So one of the things that, like, God created the world and he said it's very good. And so this philosophy basically looks at the created world that God says is very good and says, no, it's not. Like, the goal is to get out of this place. It's not good, right? So that's the first problem with it. The second problem with it is it's not, uh, if myth of progress, there was not enough discontinuity with the escape myth, there's not enough continuity between this world and the next. 
the escape myth has us like leaving behind everything and just God's going to just destroy it. He's going to dump it. He's going to do a start over. Like he's going to restart his computer uh, with the default settings. Like he's like done. Right. Um, and so there's not enough continuity between this age and the next, which the new Testament affirms and, and the resurrection of Jesus affirms. So the, the resurrection of Jesus is the key to all of this because Jesus, obviously his body had been transformed in some way, right? He, he was able to sort of, he would just appear in places. Uh, he would disappear. There was, you know, the strange phrase uh, that he says to Mary in, in John's gospel, don't hold on to me. Like, don't cling to me because I haven't, I haven't ascended yet. <laughs> like, well, I, don't, I don't know what's going on there. So there's clearly some, some new strange things going on with Jesus' body. There's discontinuity. But there was also continuity in the sense that people could look at Jesus and say, oh, that's Jesus. But sometimes they didn't recognize him, right? The, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So sometimes they didn't recognize him, but sometimes they did. And when they did recognize him, they knew it was Jesus. It wasn't like a completely new being or something like that. It was Jesus raised from the dead. And so there is both discontinuity and continuity in the in New Testament eschatology. Does that make sense? And the key is to hold them together. The easy thing is to, is to grab, on, grab onto one and dismiss the other. The myth of progress grabs onto continuity, dismisses discontinuity, and just thinks we're just going to get better and better. The myth of escape grabs onto discontinuity, but it doesn't have enough continuity, which, which means that God's not going to trash the world and start over. God's going to heal the world, and we're going to be part of it. So anyway, so that, that's kind of the background of everything that we kind of t wanted to talk about. Everything I wanted to talk about in the sermon uh, was basically that, that what God is going to do at the end is not just like slowly get us better and better, that there will be some sort of dramatic, cataclysmic healing of the world that happens. The New Testament seems to describe that. But it's also not going to be God trashing everything and starting over, but it's God, um, you know, it's it, instead of the carousel of progress or the left behind books, it's Lord of the Rings. It's a Lord of the Rings eschatology where like we're going to heal the world like, a great, like we have to destroy the ring. Uh, we can't use it, you know, we can't use the ring for, for our purposes. Neither can we just ignore the ring and hope that, you know, a, a being takes us somewhere besides Middle Earth. No, like Middle Earth is good and we have to heal it, you know, and, and that's kind of in, uh, encapsulated in the Shire. These hobbits who have this very simple life, you know, they like to drink and eat and smoke. Like, <laughs> like that, I mean, that's, that's, one of, that's what Tolkien presents as like, yeah, that's good. It's good that these hobbits like, the, they've got the pleasures of life. They like living, you know, like they're, that's, that's a good thing. So anyway, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's that eschatology where Sam, after the cataclysmic event of the destroying and, and Sauron departs uh, from Middle Earth, you know, Sam says, he wakes up and he sees Gandalf and he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Sort of incredulously. And there's also a beautiful scene later on where the hobbits come back to the Shire. And actually, some agents of Sauron are still there, sort of oppressing the people. And they actually have to do like almost like a mop-up operation to kick, those, to kick those people out. And so these hobbits who've learned to be warriors, who've learned sacrifice, who've learned there's more to life than just the pleasures of life, they have to come and actually kick out these, kick out these warriors, which I think is a beautiful allusion to something else that I think could be part of our future uh, in, the, in the eschaton. Because... You know, in Revelation 22, it says that the, uh, 
the leaves of the tree of life that grow on both sides of the river are for the healing of the nations. So it's fascinating to me that there might be more healing to do even after Revelation 22. That Jesus is present and we're here and, and the river of life is here and we've got this beachhead now, but there's still like the nations still need to be healed. Maybe that's part of our job, you know, maybe we're going to go and kind of mop up the Shire and get it back to get it back to square one. So anyway, um, let's, uh, that's good enough on a review, but I, I just wanted to see, um, I just wanted to kind of reset everything for us. Um, and there's lots we could talk about tonight. Um, I'd love to hear if you guys have, first of all, if you guys have examples that you thought of from popular culture um, of each of these myths, kind of eschatology myths that, that you've seen. Has anybody got one that you thought of that you want to share? Yeah, go ahead, Joel. Um, yeah, this was one that I came up maybe a couple weeks ago. Um, Miranda and I have been like just blazing through the leftover series. And when we were watching season one, there were several like, you know, extra features in the, the DVDs that we were watching. And there was a, there was sort of like a behind the scenes talking to some of the actors that were in this series. And, and so for, you mentioned this series in one of your sermons a few weeks ago, Ben, and if anybody doesn't know The Leftovers, it's basically a bunch of people disappear. 2% of the Earth's population disappear and people are wondering what the heck happened to them. And of course, so a lot of people wonder, is this some sort of rapture event? So in one of the interviews with one of the actors um, in, in one of these extra feature things, uh, this actress was just describing her character and the situation that she was in. And she just, she used the phrase, um, you know, in, in wondering like, what, what is it that these people are, go, are, are living through right now? And she used the phrase, uh, the uh, Christian rapture um, to describe one possible reason that these people have disappeared. And just that phrase struck me as, um, it struck me as kind of odd and funny that, and I have no idea what this actress's background is whatsoever, but it struck me that that's probably when most people hear that Christian rapture, they know what that means. And yet is the idea of the rapture um, Christian, you know, but that's what most people associate yeah. with, yeah. with Christianity is this idea that, um, Oh, well, you know, people who are Christians believe that they're going to just be, you know, zapped away to some other place. And that's why we don't care about the earth or we don't care about, you know, because this is all essentially going to be destroyed anyways. And, right. um, and obviously that's not, <laughs> not all Christians believe that. Right. But it's certainly, um, I encounter that with people that I know and love and who I greatly respect who have a theology that is like that as well. Yes. Um, so anyways, it was just an example that kind of came up that just kind of, yeah. oh, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So in, even, even inside like the, the popular imagination for people, I'm assuming this person probably wasn't a Christian. Right. But, but there's sort of, it's, uh, we are at least in America sort of known for this belief. Right. Yeah. Right. 
That's which which is actually a very new, but like the early Christians believed nothing like this. I mean, just yeah. to be clear, right. uh, they believed nothing like nothing like this. I, I don't even know how old the rapture is, but even as an idea, it's not very old uh, in mean, terms of the history of, of biblical interpretation. Yeah, um, essentially it goes back to like dispensationalism. Dispensationalism, right, yeah. Yeah, Darby, right? Uh, yes, yeah, I think so. And then, yeah, and it's based on a, it's based on a misinterpretation of something Paul wrote in First Thessalonians, which, you know, like if I was Paul, I would say like, I mean, it's, it's kind of a weird passage and he's mixing three different metaphors together in very rapid succession. And, you know, I'd, I'd be like, hey, Paul, like maybe lay off the metaphorical language here. We're going to have some trouble with this a few thousand years down the road. He didn't um, think anybody was going to read those letters, did he? Like, right, right. He's like, I, don't, I didn't think anybody was going to read these except the people I was writing them to. Like, how was I supposed to know? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting. I, 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 I almost, uh, I om- I, we'll see if we do this Sunday. We talk about the second coming because that, that sometimes gets uh, kind of conflated with the second coming of Christ, sure. this idea of the rapture. And so I might, we might unpack that, maybe in the class, but, but we'll see. I'd like to take some time to unpack First Thessalonians 4 to say, like, what is Paul actually saying here? Um, and what is he not saying? Yeah. Because it actually ends up being, he's saying the exact opposite of what most people assume he's saying. Isn't that crazy? It's so crazy. But, you know, it's a very old document. Yeah, good. That's a great example. Great example. Anybody else? Example of some of these alternative eschatologies that sometimes mask as Christian eschatology. One of them that I thought of uh, was the way the Matrix series ended. Do you guys remember the Matrix movies? Some of you might not be old. I mean, maybe you, maybe you watched them. I actually watched the first one a little while ago. And I, like, I remember being blown away by the special effects. <laughs> and then uh, I remember watching it thinking, oh, wow, we've come a long ways. I can't believe I was blown away by that. But um, uh, so, you know, the Matrix movies, they, they start out. I love the first movie. Um, but, you know, you, Neo finds out that he's living in this simulation. And so his actual physical body is being used as a battery for these machines. And uh, the way they get apparently the machines uh, to get the people to kind of relax and let their bodies be used is to kind of load them into this simulation where they're, you know, they're in a computer thing. And so the, the story of the first one is Neo escapes from his little pod and he joins the resistance. And there's these people that are in the real world are sort of fighting this war against these machines um, and then, of course, every once in a while, they jack back into the matrix, the computer program to do some things inside there, that kind of thing. And um, the second and third movies, uh, and I don't exactly remember the ending, but I remember being profoundly disappointed that the movies didn't end with Neo leading the people back up to the surface to, like, heal creation. To be like, now we're going to reestablish life on Earth. Right, because every time you see the scenes of life on Earth, it's like, it's like fire and it's like dark red, like you know, it's like an environment for machines and and people can't live up there. And I was always hoping that like the the series would end, but like you defeat the machines and you reestablish life on Earth, like 
you know? That would have been a Christian eschatology. But it ends up being more of a, I don't know, a, a Hindu or a Buddhist eschatology, where essentially Neo just sort of, he makes peace between the machines and the humans. And then like the machines just agree that the simulation that they're running, it'll just be nicer. And now you can like bend spoons with your mind and do cool stuff inside the matrix. But I, you know, the, the series ended that way. And I was like, but you're still jet, you're still batteries. Like your, your bodies, like you, like you're basically saying your physical bodies don't matter. Anyway, I was so mad uh, at the end of that series because, you know, and I realized like, oh, I was expecting something more Christian at the end of this. So it just didn't seem like good news to me that, oh, now we can all bend spoons with our minds and like fly, you know, it, but it's still a simulation. Like it didn't feel like good news, that just, just that the simulation was cooler. So. And bending spoons with your mind will lose novelty after. I know. I mean, you know, after day three, You'd be like, you know what? Maybe I should have, maybe we shouldn't have done this. Maybe we shouldn't have taken this deal. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So that, that kind of, I guess that's a, uh, that's probably more like the left behind thing. It's the, it's the repudiation of the physical world. Basically saying like, this doesn't matter. What matters is this realm of the mind. Like the physical world doesn't matter. Um, whereas like in a truly Christian eschatology, creation matters. Matter matters. So. Cool. Anything else? Any, anything else you guys thought of? Yeah, go ahead, Isaiah. Um, so uh, when, when I think of uh, the Christian purity movement, I feel like it's often uh, very Gnostic in the way it like approaches our bodies. Um, so specifically just the idea that uh, Maybe not that our bodies don't matter, but that really they're just a problem <laughs> that has to be navigated. Um, that if we could just like manage to abstain from physical, like it's all about the abstention from physical vices, um, you know, because what really matters is just like, like our souls, right? Um, and so, and it's just all, it's just so very, has such negative uh, perspective on yeah, our bodies and what they're, and what they're good for. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and specifically, of course, uh, you know, the, uh, sorry, closing a pop-up, uh, specifically the, um, uh, yeah, the ways our, bo our bodies are designed sexually, but, but I yeah. think it's just part of the bigger like Christian theme is just like, you know, if we're not really our bodies, we're, we're just really spirits that are inhabiting our bodies for a little while. Yeah, and that's mostly a problem. Yeah, and that's it's mostly a problem that we have to deal with. Like, unfortunately, we're attracted to each other, uh, but that's mostly bad, and mostly yeah. needs to be managed. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a great example. I think that is. I think I, I agree. I think that's gnostic, because um, there's no. I mean, they sort of say they sort of they sort of hint that like in that movement. I know that they hint that. Like sex, if you, if you, if you wait, like then sex is going to be amazing inside <laughs> marriage. You know what I mean? Like that's what they say, but like there's been so much shame piled up on top of it that oftentimes people actually struggle, even if they did remain pure, so to speak, before marriage, they still struggle when they get married because they, 
like they have a vision of what this is that's like, wait, this is dirty and icky and I shouldn't be doing this, you know? So yeah, good, good. That's great. Can we propose that be next Ordinary Times sermon series? Ooh. <laughs> next, like, so next next summer we talk about uh, we preach on sex. Yeah, yeah. and sexuality right. and no, yeah. Doesn't talk about. Just yeah. that out there. Yeah, throwing throwing it right out there. Yeah, we'll make sure we have kids care covered all the way through. Good to go. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, just remembered. Uh, just remembered there were some kids sitting there. So anyway, <laughs> good to see you, kids. Glad you're here with us. <laughs> Yes. Oh man, there's a lot. There's a lot to. Uh, there's a lot to uh, teach and preach through uh, on that subject. That's for sure. Good. Well, uh, what what other uh, reflections or questions do you guys have as you um, as you reflect on the sermon from Sunday, uh, the good news that we proclaimed? Any maybe anything that's come up here uh, on the call so far? Who's who's got a question or or some reflection? Anybody? Yeah, go ahead, Isaiah. Start us off. <laughs> so uh, I think uh, for me personally, uh, the I grew up in a church that was very sort of Gnostic and very escapist. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely find myself thinking uh, along those lines sometimes. But I, th- I think a lot of times what's more attractive to me is the myth of progress. Um, because I, uh, work in technology and, you know, the technological advances we make are so just obvious and palpable to me. Yeah. Um, but also I think, um, because I think the way I think about uh, our mission on the world is not just in terms like our Christian mission in the world mm-hmm. is not just in terms of like, uh, you know, evangelism, perhaps, traditional evangelism, but also in terms of like, uh, sort of being, bringing the kingdom into, uh, into the now, right? So like, there's a phrase, I think, that's used often, it's the already, but not yet. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, This idea that, you know, yes, we're not in the fullness of God's kingdom, but we can still sort of like, bring his kingdom here on earth. Uh, And so I feel like, some, I, I'd be interested to, I guess, think a little bit or yes. help me out. Like the difference between like where that maybe bleeds into the myth of progress and like, uh, like, cause part of me is just like, you know, we shouldn't have any boundaries on what we believe like God can do how much of his kingdom he can bring here now. Like, why am I going to be like, why should I be like, you know, Hey, like not too much of your kingdom, God, like, you know, we got to have a, there has to be a clear, no, we can't have full continuity. You know, uh, there needs to be a clear uh, between this and, you know, heaven someday. Uh, do, you, do you get what I'm saying? I guess. I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's good. So, uh, so there's, a, there's a sense in which you're, you know, you're, if you were tempted to one of those, you'd be more tempted towards the myth of progress. Um, and I, I, think, I think what you're naming is, um, is that there's definitely a tension there, right? That, that, uh, 
that we're going to be tempted toward the myth of progress if we do believe that, you know, God's kingdom is, you know, has come and is coming and we can actually be participating in that. Um, but then, you know, and so, so mission is more than evangelism. It's more than saving souls for heaven, you know, so to speak. Um, but I think, I think the mistake the myth of progress makes uh, is not that it believes we can make a difference or that, you know, that we can participate in God's kingdom coming now, that kind of thing. I think it's, I think the mistake it makes is that, um, and I, we, we can maybe, I don't know if I'm going to talk about this uh, next time or not, but I've, I think it's, it's that there's a tension there's a tension between the triumphalism of a church that thinks that its job is to bring the kingdom and the, this sort of escapism of a church that just thinks, Oh God, please let us get out of here before things get too bad. Right. So if those are the two extremes, um, I think, I think actually the doctrine of the ascension of Jesus helps us here. Um, because the resurrection and the ascension are sometimes they're collapsed into each other. Um, but, but they're two, they're two events, clear events in the new Testament, even though Luke is the only one who talks, uh, specifically about the ascension. Um, but he talks about it twice. He talks about it at the end of the gospel of Luke. And then he talks about it at the beginning of acts. Um, but it seems, it seems very clear that the early church uh, just universally assumed the ascension of Jesus Christ. And so what the doctrine of the ascension says is that Jesus Christ in his resurrected body went into heaven with that resurrected body. And so the ascension of Jesus means that God or Jesus has a physical resurrection body, but he's living in heaven with it. He's living in God's space. And, that, and that's heaven. Heaven is not so heaven is not like a location within the space-time universe. It's sort of like another dimension of God's good creation. Does that make sense? It's kind of sci-fi stuff. Like, it's like another dimension of God's good creation. And what, ha <laughs> what happened in the ascension is that Christ's physical body, resurrected body, went into heaven. And now he's in heaven ruling the universe with his physical body from heaven. Here's why I think that's the key uh, to what you're talking about, Isaiah. Uh, I think a, a church that, and so in the ascension, Christ who is present with us through the Holy Spirit, that's one side of the tension. Christ is present with us through the Holy Spirit. So Christ has ascended to be everywhere present. That's that, that's that part of the doctrine. The other part of the doctrine, though, is that Christ is not with us. He's in heaven. His physical body is in heaven in God's space. And so the church, like he's with us through the Holy Spirit, but he's also in heaven ruling and reigning. And so Jesus is different from the church, which, you know, it seems obvious. But I think the myth of progress is the same thing that like a triumphalistic church falls into, where we assume that like Christ is not reigning and ruling in heaven, different from the church, that Christ is the church. So basically we're ruling and reigning. And we get to bring the kingdom how and when we please. And you know what I mean? Like you can end up with a, with a church that sort of becomes oppressive because it thinks it's the only way that God's working in the world. Because we hold the key. We got the sacraments, you know, we got the word, we got the gospel. 
And so if you want life, you got to come to us. You got to do it our way. We, we're sort of dispensing life. We're, we become dispensers of the kingdom, right? And so the, you know, the answer to that is, no, we're not dispensers of the kingdom. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. And he brings his kingdom however he wants. Yes, he has given us like the sacraments. He's given us these sure and certain means of encountering him. Uh, but those aren't things that we control. Those are things we submit to. Those are things we participate in, right? And then, you know, again, it, it saves us on the other side as well, that if, that if Christ is only in heaven and he's not with us, well, then we're just like kind of pleading for our lives and hope, hope we get out of here someday. But I, I think you hold that together and you're able to, you're able to participate in the kingdom without the, the hubris of thinking I'm controlling it or bringing it or like, it's not like a substance that I have that I can do something with. It's something that's happening that I can learn to participate in as I learn to pay attention to. Does that make sense? Yeah, everything except for the dimensions. The dimension thing? <laughs> I mean, I say that mostly joking. Yeah, no, that makes right. sense. Right, I mean, it, it's a way of thinking about it. But it, it's important. I mean, you know, people actually thought that like the ascension is weird because, you know, we think of Jesus Christ like going up, like flying upward. You know, but like, what, well, where do we think he went? Like to some location in outer space? Is that where heaven is? Well, that's not, that's not what he did. You know, like, so anyway, so like Yuri, was it Yuri Gagarin? Like the, the Russian cosmonaut who went up and triumphantly declared that God wasn't up here. <laughs> he was like thinking he'd like made some discovery. <laughs> It was like, well, I guess we, we, maybe we were asking for it. Every, every icon I've seen of the Ascension is Jesus' like feet sticking out from clouds. Um, so. But it's more, like, it's more like he went into God's space, you know? Like he ascended, it's more like, it's a metaphor, you know, he ascended to the throne. Um, so, but yeah, man, that's a good, that's a good question. And, and we'll get to that too in the series, uh, that mission, mission is way more than like, getting people saved for later. Like, like our, our, our careers and our jobs and our vocations can be ways that we participate in mission. And N.T. Wright talks about it as, um, he, doesn't, he says we probably shouldn't say that we're building the kingdom, but he said we can build for the kingdom. And so he was saying like, I think there's going to be music and art and businesses that like last into God's new heavens and new earth. Because that's, I mean, why, why would God just end it and say like, ah, all those songs were terrible. Well, no, some of them are amazing. Like we're going to be singing some songs forever. Like we're going to be, I think some art is going to survive forever. I think there's going to be, you know, businesses and commerce and there's going to be elements of culture that, that are transformed that, you know, that we have, you know, in the eschaton. So who knows, maybe we'll have iPhones. I don't know. <laughs> let's cross our fingers. Maybe let's hope we have iPhones. Anyway. No, the kids want iPhones. The kids want, I oh, you want an iPhone? If you pray hard enough, Jesus will give you an iPhone. That's our eschatology. <laughs> Yay. Yay. I, you guys know I'm kidding. Can let, I, let your can mom I, and dad help you with that before bed. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, so there's this. Um, 
so there seems to be like a fine line between um, controlling this, like, yep. What you, I think the way you define it, controlling and participating. Yes. And, and, and how, and and how we as the church are the the body of Christ are somehow the physical manifestation of Christ. Yes. In, in the earth now. And it's, yes. that's tricky to wrap your head around. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. It really is. It really is. I, I think it's one of the key issues in mission um, for the church is, is wrestling with the tension of, Christ is present with his church through the sacraments in a unique and special way. Like that's what, you know, the new Testament declares that, you know, where two or three are gathered, I'm present, you know, uh, do this in remembrance of me. The, ch the early church believed in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And so there's an, there's an element of like, when we, when we do these things, we are expecting Christ to be present with us. That's just an expectation because he told us he would be if we did them, you know, like, um, but then like that can easily slip into, you know, some sort of magic formula where we get to control the presence of Christ, you know? So I, I think, again, the, the doctrine of the Ascension really helps me here to realize like, yes, Christ has given us gifts in the sacraments, right? He, he's given us sure and certain means for us to, for us to do this with. Um, but he's also free to do whatever else he wants, <laughs> you know, like he's, he's free to, you know, I, I've heard just, you know, crazy stories like that. I don't know what to do with like a, a lot of, uh, you guys ever heard of like there, there's Muslims in, in countries where it's like illegal to be a Christian who have dreams. Hi, Brianne. Um, who have, who have dreams of Jesus and Jesus comes to them and basically just says, you know, proclaims the gospel to them. And in a dream, they, they start following Jesus, you know, like the church wasn't involved with that. They didn't, they didn't come and take communion or get baptized, you know, like, where does that fit? Well, I don't know. Like, but they had a vision of Jesus and now they say they're following Jesus. So I don't know, like, sounds good to me. So um, so I, yeah, you're right though, man. That's, it, there is a, there is a tension there. And I think, um, I think that's why it's important to kind of hold those things in tension so that we can begin to, you know, just discern as we go, like, are we becoming, are we becoming triumphalistic? Are we becoming arrogant? Are we becoming oppressive? Right. In assuming we're dispensing grace to people. Um, or on the other hand, like, are we becoming fearful? You know, are we becoming um, unconfident that, that God really, you know, has given us precious gifts and that it's, it's okay to like receive them and, and participate in them and rejoice in them, you know, and call others to participate with us, you know, come be baptized, you know, come be part of the community. Like there's life here. Um, we don't get to control it, but we do get to, we are participating in it as best we can. It's good. I, I hear the same tension there in what you're talking about and what Isaiah said. So yeah, good. 
and we'll we'll get into some of that. But I do think the ascension really the the ascent the I like that idea of the ascension really helps me. It really helps me there to know that Christ is present through this Holy Spirit, but He's also absent in this strange way. Like we're also waiting for something else to happen, where Christ with His physical body will be present in the new heavens and the new earth. That's like like what we, what we have now is not like just all that we're going to have. It's just going to get better. Like there will be this like event where Christ returns and brings the kingdom. And there'll be this like line in the sand. And that, so there's, there's an element of hope in that. And there's an element for me that brings me to my knees in prayer to say, you know, like, Lord, I can participate as, as much as I can, as deeply as I, as I, as I'm able but at the end of the day, we still, like, we still long for you to come. We still long for your presence. We long for you to come and do what only you can do. You know? But by the same token, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and participate as best I can. You know? Good. What else, guys? Anything else kind of popping for you? If not, um, I don't know if this will be helpful for you guys, but uh, one, one of the things that uh, I had to leave on the cutting room floor of my sermon uh, is something I wanted to share with you guys uh, just for your own reading of the New Testament. Because one, one of the things I hope our sermons do in this series is kind of open your eyes to reading, the, especially the New Testament, since we're talking about endings here. I mean, obviously beginnings you know, hopefully you got some of the Old Testament there, but, but with the New Testament and, and reading the New Testament, I think um, uh, reading it with new eyes has really helped me uh, to see things that I hadn't seen before. Like, I assumed that a lot of the talk about anytime heaven was mentioned, I assumed like this eschatology of going to heaven when I die, rather than, oh, that's God's space that is invading, you know, earth now you know, that, that kind of a thing. So there's, um, there's six primary images that the New Testament uses to talk about this thing that we talked about on Sunday. So the image we used on Sunday was from Revelation 21, where it talks about the marriage of heaven and earth, right? So heaven and earth get married. It's like a bride and there's a celebration because this is the goal, right? Just like male and female are meant to come together to produce life, heaven and earth are meant to be together to produce life, right? And so there's this celebration in Revelation 21, 22 that is speaking of that, of that, you know, the resurrection of the dead and, and the, the eschaton, the new heavens and the new earth, right? Um, but there's, a, there's five other images that get used in the New Testament um, that I wanted to just clue you into. So as you're reading and maybe as you're hearing uh, the rest of this sermon series, you can, you can be clued into kind of, I guess, more of actually what's happening in the New Testament. So anyway, um, the first image is of seed time and harvest. And so this is from 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and so the, the feasts of Passover and Pentecost uh, were feasts where you had an offering of first fruits, um, if you guys are familiar with that. And first fruits is like the very first part of the harvest. And you offer it as a way of saying, like, man, there's more where this came from. Like it's and you offer the first fruits in anticipation of the great harvest that is to come. And so in first Corinthians 15, Paul talks about Christ's resurrection as the first fruits of everybody else's resurrection. 
right? And so it means that Christ's resurrection wasn't this one-off event, this like, awesome, he must really be God. God is really powerful. He raised somebody from the dead. Well, that's not all that that means. It means if Christ is the first fruits, it means we're going to be raised like Christ. You know, the great harvest is all of us are raised from the dead like Christ is. So that's one image, okay? Seed time and harvest. Christ is the first fruits, then the rest of us come. And so again, against Gnosticism, we're still embodied, like we're raised from the dead. There's continuity in the physical world. But against the myth of progress, there's also discontinuity here. Like no matter how holy I am, I can't raise myself from the dead. No matter how much participation I have in God's kingdom, like God's still going to have to raise me from the dead. I can't do that myself. It's going to take an act of God to do this. It even did for Jesus, right? It says that God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. Um, so anyway, seed time and harvest from 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the second image is a victorious battle. This is also in 1 Corinthians 15 when it talks about death being defeated. Uh, we sang about this on Sunday uh, in the final song that Joel led us in. Um, Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Um, and then the, the line, what's the line in the middle of the chorus? Trampling over death by death. Yeah, which is from, is that Augustine? Augustine? It's one of those early church fathers. Maybe. It might be, I can't remember. I can't remember who said that. But anyway, one of the early church fathers in a, in a Easter sermon talked about Christ trampling down death by his own death. And so th this image of a victorious battle, this act of new creation, um, like uh, is God, God defeating this enemy. Um, and so this, this harkens back to, if you remember like the sea monsters and the sea, like all the forces of chaos are threatening to kind of like throw the world into just dissolution and entropy. Um, but, and God's holding back the sea and, you know, that kind of thing. And this, this is spoken of as the final victory over death, which is sort of this uh, icon of all of the chaos that's trying to undo creation that God says, I'm going to finally defeat uh, death. And so the victorious uh, battle is the second image um, where Paul says death, death is actually an enemy to be defeated. Death doesn't just get redefined in God's kingdom as like, well, you know, it's a natural part of the nature of things. And, you know, eventually we're just going to be part of the soil. And that's kind of the, like New Testament eschatology says, no, death is an enemy. That's why it hurts so bad, hurt, hurts so bad to lose a loved one. Death is an enemy and God will defeat that enemy uh, in the end. Uh, the third image is from Philippians 3, where uh, Paul talks about us being citizens of heaven who are colonizing the earth. Um, so first, uh, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Um, Philippi, interestingly enough, was a Roman colony. And so they were citizens of Rome who lived in Philippi. And so Paul was kind of using that as, a, as an illustration to say, you guys are citizens of heaven. But that doesn't mean like your hope is, well, someday we're going to get to go there. No, he's like, no, you bring the culture of heaven to the colony, you know, to earth. Just like the Roman citizens in Philippi would bring the culture of Rome to Philippi. Does that make sense? So that's another image that Paul uses. Citizens of heaven doesn't mean one day you'll go there. Citizens of heaven means you're an ambassador for heaven right in your present, in your present world. Another image in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, which is where a lot of these are, by the way, is that God will be all in all. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 28. 
Um, and so, uh, which it, it's, it, it, it's an interesting phrase, and I, you know, I hope you guys find this as interesting as I do. <laughs> but um, God being all in all is like, it, it's against the myth of progress in that progress thinks that God is all in all now. Like what we have is good. What we have basically is God, and it's just getting better and better, right? So God, there's no, there's no disc, like God and creation are kind of the same thing. That makes sense? So God, like God is all in all. So against that, what it says is God will be all in all. And then against Gnosticism, it, you know, it's not that God, basically against Gnosticism, uh, in Gnosticism, there's this emphasis of the separation between heaven and earth. So God actually can't touch creation. But what we see in this image of God being all in all is that creation is good, but it's incomplete. Creation was meant to be flooded with God's presence and power, and yet not be God, but it's meant to be flooded with God's presence and power. And so um, it's meant for communion, basically. If you, remember, if you remember that sermon where we talked about creation as God's temple, it's meant to be this place where love freely given creates space for love to be returned. And then there's this, there's this cycle of communion where you don't collapse into each other and become the same person. You don't become the same thing. Neither is there so much separation that like you can't really commune with each other, but there's an interpenetration. There's a communion that happens as love is given, love is returned and kind of it, it goes around in a circle then, right? And becomes this act of communion. Uh, it becomes an act of uh, both connection and distinction, mutuality and, and otherness that kind of gets mixed together. And so creation is flooded then with God's presence uh, where we, we now are sort of like we're made for each other, um, which is what communion is. They don't cancel each other out, uh, but they, they celebrate each other and they make one another whole. Um, and that, that's, that's, I think, why marriage is talked about as like being Christ in the church, right? It's this picture of union, but separateness, right? So there's, there's distinction and connection that are both taking place there. That's what I think is present in that metaphor of God being all in all. So anyway, that's, that, that to me is a, you know, a beautiful thing. It's not just this separate things that are like not interacting, but in our interaction, we don't collapse into each other and just become the same thing, which would be the myth of progress. Um, all right. So the fifth image then is new birth. And this is from Romans eight. Um, there's Exodus imagery here in Romans eight, uh, where there's a the creation is in slavery and longing for liberation. And Paul says that creation is experiencing birth pangs. Um, and so it's not this upward steady trajectory. It's, it's a cataclysmic traumatic event, right? A birth is a traumatic cataclysmic event. It's like you get pregnant, pregnant, you know, you're pregnant. And obviously that's a slow and steady thing, but bringing a baby into the world is like, Oh wow. This, this is now, now we have a new state of things, right? Like it happens hopefully not over too many hours, but it's a cataclysmic traumatic uh, event to have a baby. Um, and so, uh, again, this, this image of new birth, it, it's against, it's not a dualistic rejection of physicality, right? So God doesn't, throw, God doesn't throw it away, but rather the new birth metaphor is um, not the unmaking of creation or the steady development of creation, but the drastic and dramatic birth of new creation 
from the womb of the old is kind of the image that Paul is giving there. And then the, the sixth image is, of course, the marriage of heaven and earth. So just stuff for you to look through, I guess, stuff for you to be aware of as you're reading the New Testament, um, that a lot of times this is what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about going to heaven when you die. Um, even though there is such a thing as the intermediate state, like my dad is like somewhere, I think, you know what I mean? Like the new Testament actually doesn't say much about it. The new Testament says, basically Jesus says to the thief on the cross today, you'll be with me in paradise. So whatever that, you know, like, okay, he died and then Christ died. And so somehow he was with Christ in paradise. Um, and then Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But that's about it as far as like teaching about like, what do we do until resurrection? We don't really know. There's, it's, a, it's kind of mysterious. Like who, who knows? There's some sort of presence with the Lord, but we don't know if that's, you know, it's theorized like that might be asleep. Like people won't, they won't experience the passing of time or maybe they do. Um, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot uh, there, you know, that, that people have um, speculated about. But over, overall, that's not the good news of the, of, of the gospel, is not that we get to do that. That's like a holding pattern until the good news, which is the resurrection of the dead. The Christians literally believe <laughs> that we're going to be raised from the dead like Christ was. Like that, that's, the end, that's the end of all things. That's what we believe. Which sounds kind of crazy. Some, right? I mean, it's a little bit like, it's almost easier to believe like, yeah, we go to somewhere nice when we die. A lot of people believe that, you know, like, but you, you actually think we're going to be raised from the dead. Like we're going to get out of our coffins. What about people who are cremated? How's that all going to work? I don't know. But that's what Christians believe. So Olivia, I love your faces. I love watching your faces while we talk about these things. I think you're learning the most out of all of us. Soaks it all in. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, guys, any 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 final uh, thoughts or reflections? Ben, I have a question. Um, I'm still thinking about your whole culture observation about the two different myths. Would you say I'm a big superhero fan? Would you say Wonder Woman? <laughs> And the Dark Knight Rises are probably in this whole myth of progress category. I find like the the new villains in our era very interesting how they are villains that are wanting to burn the world and who think that the earth is like a terrible thing and they want it to be reborn. And our current culture is showing heroes and saying, no, the earth is good. Um, so anyway, uh, that's just a trend I'm knowing in our culture, and I'm just interested in kind of your take on it. And is that like a myth of progress thing, or is this kind of like a new thing? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. I, uh, and it's a great observation that like I'm thinking of Thanos, right? He, he wants to like kill half the population apparently because like the universe is running out of resources or something like that, which there's a lot of holes in all that. It's like, well, why don't you, <laughs> if it's easy to snap your fingers and kill half the people, like, can you snap your fingers and create more resources? I don't know. Um, 
anyway, but that, and, and you're right in Wonder Woman, like the villain is somebody who sees, you know, these, these, you know, create, create these, these humans, right. Uh, as like, like they've, they've screwed it up so badly. They're not worth saving, you know, like, but Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman saves them. And I don't know, I don't, I don't know if it's a pure myth of progress or not, because at least in Wonder Woman, like they needed Wonder Woman. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the humans didn't do it by themselves. They needed a goddess, right? To defeat the evil power. Like they didn't stand a chance against whoever the bad guy was. So I don't know, I, I'm, I'm wondering if it is something that's not quite myth of progress, that it's more, maybe it's closer to the Christian story in that like they need a Wonder Woman, they need a hero. They need a hero to save them, but then that hero empowers them to like, you know, to kind of do the work themselves or, or participate in the work, you know, some greater way. I mean, I felt, pers I'm a big superhero fan, and <laughs> I've felt personally over the past few years in terms of storytelling in superhero movies that it's, it feels different, you know, like yeah. the, the way the is and the way the hero is, is different. And for me, it feels very Christian, but I've just been wondering if that's actually true or not. But, yeah. Um, it reminds me of, I don't know. Anyway, we can talk. Yeah, no, I. It doesn't we can talk. It's all night, but. Yeah. Just... Yeah, I, I agree that there's, there's a shift, right? It used to be Superman saved the day all by himself and everybody was just grateful, right? But there's, there's a lot more sort of like participation and empowerment of like normal people to like be part of this. You know, like the, like the superhero doesn't just do the, the whole job herself now she enlists you know others uh, I think another I don't know I don't know what this says about you know our, our heroes that nowadays but the other thing you mentioned the Dark Knight Rises is our heroes aren't as pristine as like the old Superman was right like this pristine sort of like you know the new James Bond is this broken man right who's kind of barely holding it together um, the Dark Knight Rises, you know, he's, he's this traumatized, you know, guy who's probably doing his superhero work for all the wrong reasons, you know, and he's, and he, you know, he's got a martyr complex and, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's an interesting uh, shift in terms of, like, who we see as our heroes now, too. So, they've become more human. Yeah, that's a great, I don't, I don't know if I've, I haven't spent a lot of time reflecting on it. It's a great observation and a great question to think about. Anything else, folks? Awesome. All right, friends, uh, it's good to be with you. And um, we will see you all uh, sometime soon. Sunday, if not before, I guess. All right, we'll talk about We'll talk about the second coming of Christ and uh, that uh, part, of, part of the new heavens and the new earth will be the personal presence of Jesus and, uh, and what, what we mean and what we, what we don't mean by that. So, all right. Peace, y'all.
Sounds good. Thanks, Ben. Thanks. All right. Have a good night.